Well, first thing that um, I think we need to really discuss with patients is medication adherence. So the medication is not going to work if the patient's not taking it. Again, in this blood pressure monitoring program that I've been working on through a research project, one of the patients said the most impactful part of that program was she knew the pharmacist was going to be checking in with her every couple weeks on what her blood pressure was. And that was kind of triggering her to remember to take her medication. So, so I think we need to start there before making therapy uh, changes. Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show, where quality measurement leads to better patient outcomes. This show will be your go-to source for all things related to quality improvement and medication use in healthcare. We will hit on trending health topics as they relate to performance measurements and find common ground for payers and practitioners. We will discuss how the Equip platform can help you with your performance goals. And we will also make sure to keep you up to date on pharmacy quality news. Please note that the topics discussed are based on the information available at the date and time of recording. Information or guidelines are updated periodically, and we will always recommend that our listeners research and review any guidelines that are newly published. Buckle up and put your thinking cap on. The Quality Corner Show starts now. Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. Welcome to the PQS podcast, where we focus on medication use, quality improvement, and how we can utilize pharmacists to improve patient health outcomes. I'm your host, Nick Dorge, and February is American Heart Month. Our conversation today is continuing on about how pharmacists help patients measure their blood pressure and improve their heart health. For the first episode, we focused on what is high blood pressure or hypertension and how pharmacists can help to manage it and support their patients. Now, today's guest will help us to walk through how pharmacists manage and work through an evolving evolving treatment plan with patients. You may be thinking, yes, Nick, we know how to manage blood pressure, but reaffirming our knowledge or making sure that we're up to date on clinical guidelines is an essential part of anyone's quality improvement process. And it's also good for all of us as healthcare providers to be reminded, or again, stay up to date. That's the intent for today's episode. So with that, allow me to introduce our guest. Our guest is Dr. Stevie Veach, and she is a clinical assistant professor, pharmacy practice and science at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Stevie, welcome to the PQS Quality Corner Show. And how are you doing today? Hi, Nick, thanks. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Now, Steve, before we get into our questions about managing or treating hypertension, we need to know about you, your career in healthcare, and then what do you do today? So do you mind giving us a little bit of information or your your autobiography? Sure. So I am a graduate of the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. And following my graduation with my PharmD degree, I did a community pharmacy residency with the University of Iowa and Mercy Family Pharmacy in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, here I got to expand my, my clinical service knowledge um, and did a lot of disease state management and medication therapy management. From there, I went to work with CarePro Health Services in North Liberty, Iowa. I was in charge of our clinical services as well as being a pr primary preceptor for students. I worked there for five years before then going into a shared faculty position with the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Um, in my roles at, as faculty at Iowa, I am the director of our community pharmacy residency program. And I also oversee courses such as the community pharmacy introductory practice experience and um, topics, you know, courses that cover over-the-counter medications. 
I also partner with some of our research faculty on practice-based initiatives. And one of them that we have been working on for several years is hypertension management involving community pharmacists as that, that primary care provider. Excellent. And, and that practice or that research uh, is actually the reason I reached out to you about doing this episode. As I was researching who and what we wanted to cover about pharmacists treating and managing hypertension, I found this great resource um, that I actually found from the it's the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, or ASTO. They had a, a, a publication there about some pharmacist experience. Stevie, you were part of that uh, uh, but part of that research and you and I had previously uh, had worked together. So it was, hey, this is a great way to reconnect um, and really happy for us to uh, engage in this podcast episode. Now, Stevie, before I jump into our questions for today, I do have one other item I want to ask you about. And this this is a this is going to be a curveball. This was not something that came prepared. But as as you were giving your introduction, it made me think again, wow, we've had so many guests on this show from Iowa. It's probably a three-way race between Iowa, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, where we've had the most guests on the show. So before we jump into the questions, I just want to ask you, you, you did your pharmacy training in Iowa, residency, now you're part of the, the fabric of community pharmacy research and practice there. What is it about Iowa that makes it this hotbed for activity to advancing pharmacy practice? So that's a great question you have, Nick. I think being a rural state, you know, pharmacists definitely are that primary health care provider in many communities. Um, I think we've had great leaders in our state that have really pushed the pharmacy practice to practice at the top of our license. Um, and I think in Iowa and, and many of our other Midwest states, you kind of just have that um, can-do attitude and help your neighbor. So a lot of the initiatives that, that started in Iowa that advanced pharmaceutical care were because pharmacists got together and helped each other out uh, to help all of us succeed. So I, th I think those are some of the factors that have helped Iowa lead the way. So it, the Midwest often gets identified for having this nice attitude. Maybe it's you know more laid back, but as you pointed out, and having worked with a lot of folks from Midwest, there is a special can-do attitude, and there is a special. Uh, recognition and promotion of the own accolades and success of the different programs. So that part is pretty unique from Iowa. We've had other guests from Iowa on the show before, and I've made this note previously, so this is not new information, but some of the most active folks that I see on social media platforms related to pharmacy practice come from Iowa. So keep up the great work for, yeah, Stevie, for yourself and for your partners, but to I, those in Iowa in general, keep up the great work. All right. We are going to get to our questions now, but before we do, we're going to hear the breakdown. Now it's time for the breakdown. As Quality Corner show host, Nick will ask three main topic questions. Our guests will have a chance to respond, and there will be some discussion to summarize the key points. This process will repeat for the second and third questions, which will wrap up the primary content for this recording. After that, expect to end on a closing summary, containing a bonus question. Now that we have described the process, let's jump into the questions. All right, Stevie, we are taking a deeper dive today into pharmacists and how they are managing and treating blood pressure. And I want to talk a bit about the treatment uh, and, and what is that treatment plan? How is it created? How has that evolved? Has that escalated? And setting an appropriate goal with the patient because it's not just the provider that is setting the goal for the patient, right? The patient needs to be a part of that process. Stevie, let's start with this hypothetical example. A patient 
is showing up at your clinic or at your community pharmacy and they are newly diagnosed with hypertension or high blood pressure. Maybe it's even actually pre-hypertension. So this is the situation when a patient's systolic blood pressure ranges between 120 to 130 millimeters mercury or diastolic is between 80 to 89. Now, what happens next from a provider standpoint? Where does the treatment plan for a patient start? And specifically, I want to address you know, what types of lifestyle modifications, what types of non-pharmacologic options might be encouraged or discussed with the patient. And spoiler alert, we're gonna to get to the pharmacologic options <laughs> in question two, but for now, what's that initial conversation? What's that initial treatment plan with, with the patient? Great question, Nick. So you described pre-hypertension, but the guidelines would even say if, if an individual is in that stage one hypertension, so even a little bit more elevated, 130 um, to 140 and, and 90 to 99 for the diastolic, um, as long as they have a low risk for uh, ASCVD, their atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you might want to do non-drug um, lifestyle modifications first line for these patients. And, and you may do that over several months to see if you can get them at goal. There's so many factors, uh, many of them modifiable that we can target. Um, so things like stress, we all have stress in our lives. So if an individual is able to reduce their stress, um, which that's not always possible, but you, you can definitely start there. Um, we all know diet and physical activity are really important. So um, assessing an individual's baseline, are they eating appropriately? Are they watching their sodium in the diet? Well, we could talk to them about the DASH diet uh, as a way to lower that sodium. Um, physical activity, again, I think we all could probably say we could, we, as Americans, we could all probably benefit more from getting out there and being active because that can help lower our um, blood pressure. And then those combined, if we see weight reduction with that diet change and physical activity, we're going to see a lower, lower blood pressure overall. A couple other dietary factors. Um, alcohol use can definitely impact blood pressure quite significantly. So those are questions we should be asking our patients, um, as well as tobacco use. And that is one thing with the project that I've been working on in Iowa is we would like to try to implement more um, smoking cessation efforts within our community pharmacy practices. This was something that was really popular, I would say, um, maybe 20 years ago of having pharmacists doing smoke cessation counseling. Um, but I think we've kind of lacked our focus on that more recently in light of other, you know, higher priority issues. But many states, including Iowa, but there's several out there that have statewide protocols for pharmacists in the community or any practice to be able to do assessments and recommendations for nicotine replacement therapy. And then finally, um, one that I've seen really significantly impact in individuals' blood pressure is sleep. Uh, sleep is so important. Um, so just not get, not only getting regular sleep, but I've actually worked um, in some of the disease state management programs I've done over the years with individuals that have had disorders for sleep apnea. Um, I was able actually through monthly counseling, able to identify one patient that uh, his blood pressure was consistently running a little elevated and uh, after months of working on diet and physical activity, which, which he was already doing at baseline, but trying to keep focusing on that, 
one day he just approached me and said, you know what, I'm not sleeping well. And as I talked to him uh, further, asked him some more questions, I said, I think you should really go have a sleep study done. So when he came back the next month and he said, you know, what? I took your advice and he's like, I have sleep apnea. And it was really significant. He was waking up, you know, multiple times within the hour. Um, and he didn't even realize that. And so once he was able to get assessed for sleep apnea, then he was able to get his blood pressure under control without even initiating medication treatment. So pharmacists in any practice can use uh, really simple short questionnaires like the stop bang assessment. Um, it's, it's to help assess sleep apnea. So there's a lot of tools out there that we can use for questioning our patients and asking them about their risk factors uh, for that might be impacting their blood pressure. Excellent. Well, Stevie, good start here so far on, as I brought it up, either this is a patient that's newly diagnosed or uh, perhaps even pre-hypertension. At this stage, what's the frequency of that kind of assessment or evaluation for a patient? You know, what are we talking? Is this like every three months assessing? You'd mentioned for some patients, it may be a monthly check of their blood pressure. I already said our second question, our topic is going to be on medication use. Basically, how long or how much time should be occurring from when we go from those non-pharmacologic and lifestyle modifications before we start talking, initiating medication? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. And, you know, the guidelines do kind of point out three to six months, um, as long as they're staying within that kind of pre-hypertension or low risk. If they start to escalate um, up into that stage two hypertension or if there's other risk factors, we wouldn't want to wait that long. But but if if they're making successful changes, it's going to take time for that blood pressure to come down. So, so it's appropriate um, to wait three months or even up to six months if you're seeing some, some changes within the patient. Yeah. And that's an important item for the counseling with the patient, right? This is not taking a seven-day course of antibiotics. This is something where those changes are going to take time. It's good to understand that part of it and to understand that context before, hey, this is when we start a medication or some other treatment. Now, Stevie, let's go to our second topic. And I already spoiled what it is. We're going to talk about medication. So, you know, lifestyle modifications or, or, or other non-pharmacologic options at this point, they are not achieving the intended goal, or perhaps the patient's situation has escalated um, and they, they've gone up to a higher stage of that hypertension. We're going to talk more in depth about medication. So um, what comes as fr uh, frontline or first-line primary treatment for, for medications? And we don't do that this often on the show, Stevie, but if you want to get into some of the pharmacologic uh, mechanisms of action, Happy to do that in this in this case here. Again, we don't do that all the time on the PQS show, but um, within the course of talking treatment here, what medications are considered? Where do we start? Yeah, well, the guidelines and the the guidelines I'm primarily referring to, Nick, are the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association have a joint guideline for hypertension management, and. The most recent edition of that points out four classes of medications that could be used as first line. Um, they highlight thiazide diuretics, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or ARBs, calcium channel blockers as the first four um, initial primary agents. Uh, often thiazide diuretics are initiated first line, um, but I have seen some other treatment protocols out there. One was an example from the American Medical Association that actually promoted using calcium channel blockers as first line, but any of those four would be appropriate. Um, and I think just factoring other patient factors in there as well. 
Excellent. Um, so with that, Stevie, and, and with these different medications, initial treatment is going to be monotherapy, right? For for uh, with one of these medications, I, many of those medications may be used in combination, but that's going to be more related to escalation of therapy, correct? Well, the guidelines do say if an individual starts at greater than 140 uh, systolic blood pressure or greater than 90 diastolic blood pressure, you can consider adding on two agents. Clinically, patients might not be quite as willing to do that. Providers might not be as willing to do that. But the guidelines say you can start a combination or two agents um, to begin with because many patients that start at a baseline um, greater than 140 over 90 often will require two agents from two different classes to achieve goal. Excellent. Well, great identification here. And I have to commend you, Stevie, for your reference to the guidelines and right this is all it's it's contextual for this the guidelines there this is what's recommended this is what evidence has shown um, but each patient case each example is going to be you know relevant for that particular patient um, you know what they how they're going to be able to use the medication other impact for their lifestyle so guidelines are are just that it's a recommendation or suggestion for that clinical uh, treatment and reaching the end goal um, but it is going to really become uh, imperative for the pharmacist, their clinical knowledge, their acumen, along with understanding the patient's end goals to selecting which medication is right and when is the right time to start using that medication along with adjusting it. Now, Stevie, I'll move us to our, our next question, and we'll go a little bit further on medication use, escalation for managing hypertension. So let's talk about, well, maybe lifestyle modifications. That was step one and non-pharmacologic options. Step one, that didn't work. Introducing medications in step two, that has not worked. What's, what is that clinical decision-making process for adding other medications? And particularly when it comes to these treatments for hypertension, what are the key items that a pharmacist should be counseling the patient on? Um, especially as I think about it, increasing doses or adding other medications, that increases our risk for um, the patient having adverse effects or side effects to that medication. So what are the key counseling points there that the patients need to be aware of? Well, first thing that um, I think we need to really discuss with patients is medication adherence. So the medication is not going to work if the patient's not taking it. Again, in this blood pressure monitoring program that I've been working on through a research project, one of the patients said the most impactful part of that program was she knew the pharmacist was going to be checking in with her every a couple of weeks on what her blood pressure was. And that was kind of triggering her to remember to take her medication. So, so I think we need to start there before making therapy uh, changes. But from there, you know, it is, it is a clinical decision making whether you want to increase the dose or add a second agent. Um, and there's no one exact right answer. But one thing I've seen that I probably wouldn't agree with is I've had a patient where they were getting a third agent added and neither of the first two agents were, were increased in dose or you know, maximized in dose for a uh, efficacy. So, so I think we need to, again, have conversations with the patients um, about why you might need more than one medication, that different mechanisms work synergistically together, when it's appropriate to increase the dose. Um, because often patients might be adverse to even starting one medication, let alone a, a second one. And then another factor to think about um, when making these decisions is also many of these blood pressure medications come in combination. So choosing medications and doses that, that are available in a, in a combo therapy for, again, convenience in one, one 
treatment pill. Now, the the last question I have before we close, Steve, most when we're talking these classes of medications, um, the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs, and renin inhibitors, uh, thiazide diuretics, at this point, and we're recording in the early months of 2022, most of these medications are generic, which in theory as well means that should cost should be less of a barrier for patients, but um, patients may be in a plan with a deductible. There could be any number of situations as well where you know how long many of these medications may be used um, and how effective they are despite being somewhat older products. Cost may still be a barrier um, in some patient cases, but does that come into a decision-making process with the, the patient and therapy as well? Yeah, I think it always should should be a consideration. When I teach different therapeutic topics to pharmacy students, and I also teach um, physician's assistants, I, I always bring up costs because if a patient gets to the pharmacy and the, the medication is cost prohibitive, they're likely going to walk away without it, or they're going to you know, try to stretch out the use of that medication and take it half as often or take half as much. You know, I've definitely seen that with real life practice out there. So I think those are important things to consider. Excellent. Well, Stevie, I want to thank you. I'm going to close down our main topic of conversation for today. Really appreciate you helping us walk through treatment of hypertension and how providers, and when I say providers, I, I do mean the physicians, the prescribers, I do mean pharmacists, Make sure to call that part out, but how providers are working through a treatment plan with patients. Uh, this episode was a bit different than many of our other episodes where we typically focus on the quality improvement process and how pharmacists are changing practice, but this was really more that patient-pharmacist uh, uh, interaction, right, and managing the patient. Um, it's nice for the show to come back to that topic and to talk with pharmacists actively doing this or actively doing this and teaching it and researching it as well for further implementation. Uh, and Steve, I, again, I commended you earlier for reference to the guidelines. Uh, there were a number of quotes that you had. Uh, there's a very high hit rate in how many quotes we can use for sound bites. <laughs> in the lead into the episode, we can use as well as some of the social media posts for this. So you did a great job speaking to the topic um, and really providing a lot of great information in a way that's easy for everyone to understand. So I do appreciate that. Now, we have reached that part of the episode. We've covered our main topic. We always talk quality improvement on the show and what is the quality improvement process for our guests. So, Stevie, I've got three questions for you before we close today, uh, and they are related to your own goals, your own quality improvement process. So three questions. One, how do you track your personal or professional goals? You can you can choose up to your discretion what you want to share about. Two, can you share a goal you're currently working on? And three, is there a goal you haven't yet started in 2022, but that you would like to start? Those are all good questions, Nick. For how I track my goals, well, just to give you a little more background about myself, I am a practicing community pharmacist. I practice one to two days a week. I am a faculty member and I coordinate courses. I teach in courses. I do you know, hands-on training. Um, I'm a wife and I'm also a mom of three boys and, and they're all uh, under the age of 12. So my way to track if I'm meeting my goals is if I've made it through the day. As far as, as goals, um, I have set some goals. I think the pandemic has helped or caused a lot of us to kind of refocus on what our goals are. So one goal that I've been working on is just self-care. And there's a couple of things I've been doing. Um, I've been trying to do yoga, um, not daily, but as a way to just kind of focus and take time for myself. Again, I'm a mom of 
three busy boys. So to have some personal quiet time is, is one way that I can reconnect and self-care as well as just enjoy life and, and spend time with my family and friends um, when I'm able to. Um, another goal I have that I haven't fully implemented, but I, I would like to start um, is just to work on my own organization, both per personally and professionally. Um, I've never been a super organized type A person like many pharmacists are, but but I think, you know, when you're well organized, it, it helps you be more efficient. And so that's that's something that I'm trying to implement in my, my crazy, hectic life. Well, Stevie, and in my own personal life, Growing up, I was the oldest of four kids myself, and then I was followed by, by by two boys. So if myself and my family was any indication of how hectic things can be with three boys, I, I know you've got your hands full there. Best wishes to you. And, and the yoga might be a necessity to get through the days as well. <laughs> um, but Stevie, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts. Um, we are going to be having another episode for our audience as it relates to hypertension, and we're going to be having actually a uh, fellow researcher and uh, I guess frequent collaborator is that that might be the right term, right, yes. Stevie? Uh, yes. We're going to have a, a friend, colleague, frequent collaborator of Stevie's that's going to join for another episode, and we're going to talk about how pharmacists are uh, implementing hypertension screening and management. And that's going to be more kind of the hands-on, the nuts and bolts, how you do it from operating, you know, the business workflow. What are some of the considerations there? I, to me, it's going to be a very fascinating. Uh, in the same vein as this topic, no pun intended, but also very different at, at the same time. Now, Stevie, before we let you go, uh, folks may have questions for you. They may want to you know, learn more about some of the practice and some of the research that you've done. Where can they contact you? Yeah, Nick. Um, so my my email address is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, you can find me in the directory of the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy faculty, but it's my email is just my name, stevie-veach at uiowa.edu. Easy enough. All right, Stevie, thank you very much again for appearing on the episode. It was great to have you on here. Best wishes going forward. And uh, for our audience, we have now wrapped up today's episode. So we thank you for joining us and for listening to another episode of the Quality Corner Show. We'll be back next week with a new episode. But until then, we have one final message from the PQS team. The Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show has a request for you. Our goal is to spread the word about how quality measurement can help improve health outcomes, and we need your help in sharing this podcast to friends and colleagues in the healthcare industry. We also want you to provide feedback, ask us questions, and suggest health topics you'd like to see covered. If you are a health expert and you want to contribute to the show or even talk on the show, please contact us. You can email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what is on your mind, what we can address, so that you are fully informed. We want you to be able to provide the best care for your patients and members, and we wish all of you listeners out there well.